All right, we are back. In this segment, we're going to do a little bit of politics, which can sometimes be depressing, but I think is necessary. And some science topics, which we expect to be a lot more fun. We would start by noting that early last month, King Juan Carlos of Spain decided to step down. Noted the week after four decades in the throne, Juan Carlos of Spain announced he's stepping down to allow his son, Crown Prince Felipe, to become monarch. The king, age 76, has been unpopular since he was photographed killing an elephant on safari last year at a time when Spaniards were protesting soaring unemployment and growing homelessness. The Economist noted that Juan Carlos was put on the throne by Francisco Franco, who appointed him as his, as his successor in an effort to restore the monarchy that she'd, which had been thrown out 44 years earlier, and also perhaps move toward democracy. And apparently Juan Carlos had some success in the restoration of democracy. There was an attempted coup by right-wing military officers back, I believe it was in the late 70s, and Juan Carlos came forward to put that down. Spain voted to actually keep their monarchy in a plebiscite a couple of decades ago. And it's noted that for many years he was one of Europe's most popular monarchs. But noted The Economist, as Spanish democracy became more robust, a new generation saw democracy and demanded transparency and high-level ethical standards. The royal family apparently did not notice. Apparently the royal family got caught up in fraud and tax avoidance claims. Juan Carlos behaved as if nothing had changed. In 2012, as Spain reeled from recession, he flitted to Botswana for a free elephant hunting trip accompanied by a glamorous German woman. Spaniards apparently found out after he was injured and a special aircraft was sent to bring him home. It was noted that the local branch of the Worldwide Fund for Nature fired him. When you're shooting elephants, you, you probably should be fired. But we would note the rather refreshing perspective provided to the Sacramento Bee by Marcos Kulanakis, whose political fixer Angelo Sakopoulos' son-in-law, who noted an op-ed piece, Modern Era Monarchs Have Their Place. Said Kulanakis, what Juan Carlos showed the world is that kings can be critical for countries transitioning to democracies. We're looking forward to his next essay, Why the Feudal System is Not So Bad. And in other news related to Latin democracies, we uh, failed to mention that down in El Salvador, Salvador Sanchez Seren, a rural school teacher who had been a rebel commander, was sworn in as the president of El Salvador, becoming the first former guerrilla to lead the Central American nation. It was his Farabundo Marti National Liberation Front that battled U.S.-backed governments during the 12-year conflict back in the 70s and 80s in which 76,000 people died. The Front became a political party after peace accords in 1992. And one thing we didn't talk about too much last week was the 25th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre. There was a great piece on it, however, by Stuart Leavenworth writing in a special to the B, which we would refer you to. Referring to the case of Tang Biao, a human rights lawyer from Beijing who twice has been detained by the Chinese authorities. And when it comes to a bad behavior by the Chinese, it appears that the folks over in the People's Republic may have taken a page or two out of the NSA's playbook. This week, a German security firm says that a cheap brand of Chinese-made smartphones comes pre-installed with espionage software. G Data Software says it ordered a Star N9500 handset from an online retailer last month and found malicious code hidden deep in the device's proprietary software. 
The German firm said that the spyware would allow a third party to steal personal data, place rogue calls, and even use the phone's camera and microphones as improvised surveillance devices. According to the AP, this find is the latest in a series of incidents where smartphones have appeared on doorsteps preloaded with malicious software. We would note that if a smartphone suddenly appears on your doorstep, you, you, just, you just may want to take a step back before you embrace it. And some other technology we think is pretty scary. There's the matter of drones. According to the Washington Post, more than 400 U.S. military drones have crashed since 2001, slamming into homes, farms, runways, highways, waterways, and at least in one instance, an Air Force transport plane in midair. And while drones are technically banned from commercial use, the FAA rarely punishes companies that use them. You can go on the web and find a, find a video of a company that was flying a drone over a crowd in Virginia when it crashed into the people. While no one had to be taken to the hospital, four or five folks were treated for minor injuries. Smithsonian Magazine notes that uh, by 2018, it's expected that there will be 7,500 civilian drones in American airspace. Apparently, an FAA spokesman was quoted recently as saying, we really would only pursue a civil penalty if someone was operating an unmanned aircraft in a reckless manner. And the FAA is gearing up to allow commercial drones to fly in U.S. airspace as soon as 2016, a prospect that has many people concerned that their privacy might be invaded, along with perhaps their personal space. And Smithsonian cited a very, well, troublesome little anecdote. To quote from the magazine, when people debate the coming of civilian drones, they probably aren't taking into account the strange thing that happened at a Texas A&M student production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Brittany Duncan, a doctoral candidate at the university and her faculty advisor, a professor of computer science named Robin Murphy, were on a team providing technical support for the micro helicopters and the air robot quadcopter style drone that were used to represent Shakespeare's fairies. Noted the magazine, in rehearsals, the actors tended to behave as if the air robot, roughly the diameter of a large pizza with four exposed rotors, were as safe as the fist-sized micro-helicopters. So Murphy took to urging him to think of the air robot as the flying weed whacker of death. But when audiences also displayed a high level of comfort, she began to wonder whether small drones are just not scary to people. So Duncan and Murphy looked into this and found out that, well, people just don't perceive some drones as invasive at all. In fact, the subjects they studied's heart rate failed to register anxiety even when an air robot approached just two feet away at roughly head height. That was surprising because most previous experiments by other researchers showed that people tended to react to earthbound robots by maintaining a personal space of three feet or more, much as they do with other humans. Also, contrary to expectation, the test subjects were inclined not to treat the airspace under the drone as if it were occupied. Instead, they reacted as if the drone were roughly as threatening as Tinkerbell. Why would people steer clear of a robot on the ground but let a flying contraption buzz their heads? Well, Duncan speculates that most of the predators in our evolutionary past would have approached at ground level, not head height. Perhaps small drones bypass our usual defensive responses because of a certain bird-like disconnect from terra firma. And for personal danger of another sort, we would uh, point to how the neocons are coming out of the woodwork currently 
with Iraq in pieces and extremist militants marching toward Baghdad. Unrepentant Bush-era warmongers like Foreign Deputy Defense Secretary Paul Wolfowitz, former Iraq envoy Paul Bremer, and former Vice President Dick Cheney are going into overdrive to blame the collapse on the country on everyone other than themselves. Primarily, they're blaming the chaos on President Obama's refusal to keep U.S. troops in Iraq in perpetuity. That was according to Jacob Heilbrun, writing on Politico.com. But to hear Radio Parallax, we'd like to pull the camera back and address a greater issue here about how very few people step forward to voice objections to the upcoming war in Iraq back in 2002, at which time Radio Parallax kept playing the Marx Brothers' Fredonia's going to war on a regular basis, pointing out that no matter how coy they're being about this, the neocons are going to take us to war in the Middle East, specifically Iraq. We were already at war in Afghanistan. Writing about all this, Frank Rich noted that it's the default position of liberals to lay the blame for this apocalyptic legacy, a failing Iraq, unchecked international jihadism, a neo-isolationist America on the Bushies, who deployed cooked evidence and outright lies to sell the country on the war and then executed their own strategy with breathtaking recklessness and incompetence. The Iraq war cheerleaders on the right, whether think tank-funded neocons, armchair generals, or flagpin-bearing bloviators at Fox News are also easily identifiable culprits in this story. So are the reporters and editors in the mainstream press, who at best failed to vet and at worst jingoistically inflated Bush administration propaganda about Saddam Hussein's non-existent weapons of mass destruction. What tends to be swept under history's rug is the leading role that the liberal establishment played in this calamity. A majority of Senate Democrats voted to authorize the war including presidential aspirants Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, John Kerry, and John Edwards. Most of the liberal pundits and public intellectuals who might have challenged the rationale for an invasion enlisted in the stampede instead, giving the politicians cover. And these notes Frank Rich are the targets of Michael Hastings' rude little book. It's titled The Magazine, and we're going to have more to say about that in the weeks and months to come. We talked about the unexpected death of Michael Hastings on this program last year. His car apparently accelerated to a high rate of speed and struck a palm tree in Los Angeles, raising the possibility that someone had remotely interfered with his automobile with fatal results. Apparently some in law enforcement down in Los Angeles suspect that is what happened. Among Hastings' papers found after his death were a novel, which is going to be the upcoming The Magazine. Worth quoting a little bit more from the Frank Rich piece about this. He noted that a month before the invasion in 2003, Bill Keller, then a Times op-ed columnist, took a census of the I Can't Believe I'm a Hawk Club. He unexpectedly found himself in it. It was a large group that included op-ed regulars at his newspaper and the Washington Post. Also the editors of The New Yorker, The New Republic, and Slate. Also columnists in Time and Newsweek. Contrary to Hastings' harsh view of their motivations, the liberal hawks all claimed their stands were based on the merits of the case. They believed that Saddam, indisputably a mass murderer of his own people, could be taken out in a surgical military action. Rapid, accurate, and dazzling in Christopher Hitchens' formulation. Some believed, as the Bush administration hectored, that Iraq's arsenal was a ticking time bomb threatening America. Rich notes that when these rationales started to collapse, most, though not all, of the original liberal hawks started to scatter. We highly recommend that you read the Frank Rich piece in its entirety. 
We certainly hope you will do so. It's titled Iraq Everlasting and can be found on newyorkmagazine.com or nymag.com. All right, let's talk about science stuff. Apparently the good people at Sky and Telescope Magazine have put out a special edition titled Mars, Mysteries and Marvels of the Red Planet, which is frankly something we think is irresistible. The chapter titled Water on Mars reminds us that we really do need to get Emily Lakdawalla on this program. She does such great work on planetary radio, heard here at KDVS, I believe, on Friday mornings. But Emily's piece, and another one by Matt Golombek, asking what lies beneath, referring to the Martian surface, raised the curious question of, well, what happened to all the water? We know that Mars had oceans back something like 4 billion years ago. It appears that most of the northern part of the planet was once under a shallow ocean. But the water is gone. The surface is dry now. And the question is, did the water go down into the Martian surface or get stripped off the planet and blown off into space? Most people think it's the former. One reason we're such fans of space exploration is that when you go to a Mars or a Venus and find terrestrial planets very much like the Earth, it challenges the assumptions made about our home planet and sometimes educates us as to what the hell is really going on regarding facts that were laying right in front of us, but unrecognized. As regards planet Earth, there's a debate about whether the water here on our planet, and of course, three quarters of the Earth's surface is water, which is an amazing thing to contemplate. We don't know whether the water was here when the planet cooled off or whether it arrived in comets. And some recent research using um, seismograph data indicates that there's a hidden reserve of water deep in our own planet's crust. In fact, Correction, as I look at the piece, it's referring to water that's down deep toward the Earth's core. Well, at least in our mantle. The water, which these which seismographic data seems to indicate is there, is hidden in a blue rock called Ringwood Light. It lies 700 kilometers down in the mantle, which is between the Earth's surface and the core. Research done by Steve Jacobson of Northwestern University at Evanston and colleagues We're studying seismic waves for more than 500 earthquakes. By measuring the speed of the waves at different depths, they could determine which types of rock they pass through. And this water level revealed itself because the waves slowed down. Apparently it takes longer to get through soggy rock than dry. This finding backs up a recent study by Graham Pearson at the University of Alberta, who studied a diamond from the transition zone between the upper and lower mantle of the earth and was carried to the surface via volcanic activity and found that it held water-bearing ringwood light. So apparently this ringwood light has lots of liquid attached to it and in it and could account for an awful lot of um, H2O down deep below the crust. We should note that uh, this is not really the wet stuff down there so much as, um, well, it's it's water that is sort of absorbed by the crystal-like structure of ringwood light like a sponge. And uh, by the way, a lot of folks think that one reason that Mars may not have the tectonic activity we have here on planet Earth is maybe didn't have enough water to kind of lubricate the rocks. We really do need to send someone over to the red planet with a shovel and start digging and see what's down below the surface. I mean, I know they've got these little claws that kind of scratch through the dust, but we need to go down there with a, you know, a proper auger. And we would note that earlier this week, apparently NASA Chief Charles Bolden came out to the Aerojet facility in Rancho Cordova to deliver an update on NASA's Orion mission, which is poised to end a 42-year drought in manned exploration of deep space. 
The Orion spacecraft is scheduled for an unmanned test launch on December 4th, which is thought to be the first step toward landing astronauts on Mars by the late 2020s. We hope so. Aerojet, of course, has partnered with NASA since the 1960s era Mercury missions. We talked about working over there with my neighbor, Lino Carollo, who was happily employed over at Aerojet when the Mercury astronauts came through to thank them for their efforts. And certainly one of our favorite all-time interviews was that with George Pendle talking about the founding of the Aerojet company and also NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory through the work of a man called John Whitesides Parsons, one of history's more curious figures. We highly recommend, dear listener, that you check out uh, that interview on our archives at radioparallax.com. And yes, we're still working at making some connections over at uh, NASA Ames to talk to some people about the Kepler spacecraft and the, the SETI Institute, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. There's a mini-interview in the current issue of Discover Magazine with um, Seth Shostak of the SETI Institute. Evidently a movie coming out this week titled Earth to Echo. And explorers establishing contact with an alien robot via text messages. We here at Radio Parallax have a very hard time believing that extraterrestrial intelligence would be texting. We did love the pictures uh, accompanying the piece, showing two of Hollywood's great movies uh, uh, featuring connections between Earth people and aliens. In this case, Plan 9 from Outer Space and The Day the Earth Stood Still. We're big fans of Plan 9 from Outer Space, widely regarded as one of the worst movies ever made. So bad that it's great. We expect to bring uh, back on the program Salon.com founder David Talbot later this year. And uh, his dad was movie actor Lyle Talbot, who appeared in Plan 9. And I hope that maybe we can get David to talk a little bit about that and his, his experiences with Ed Wood. And if you've never seen The Day the Earth Stood Still, we highly recommend that you do so. No, no, not the Keanu Reeves one. The one with Michael Rennie from the 50s. The one that taught us to remember that phrase. Cloud 2. Barada Nikto. And uh, the July-August 2014 issue of Discover had another piece in it that, well, again, it's just irresistible for us. It's titled, What's in a Name? A piece by Adam Hadhazi, and notes how the explosion of newly discovered planets outside our solar system is sparking debate over the monikers we might attach to these newly discovered worlds. I think everyone agrees that a name like HD85512B isn't very exciting. But should we start naming these planets willy-nilly? And the battle lines are being drawn between the International Astronomical Union, the IAU, which does get to name things officially, and a startup company called Uingu, which means sky in Swahili. It is composed of several prominent astronomers and some IAU members. Evidently, it publicly thumbed its nose at the IAU earlier this year and held a contest to name the closest exoplanet, designated by the IAU as Alpha Centauri Large B Little B. I guess we should explain that name. The Alpha Centauri system has two stars, A and B. There is some evidence suggesting, and it's not 100% clear yet if this is so, but there is some evidence suggesting that Alpha Centauri Large B has a planet around it, which is being designated lowercase b. Now, we have to admit that name does kind of suck. But when Uingo announced the, uh, the winner in the contest they held, which they charged, by the way, $4.99 for name nominations and $0.99 cents for votes, 
Some names like Rock Hot and Calio came up, but the winner was Albertus Alauda, a Latinized version of a participant's grandfather's name. And no, we think that name sucks even worse. But uh, we highly recommend the piece on this because it does raise a lot of questions. There's only so many names in Greek and Roman mythology, or even in all of the world's mythologies. And at the rate at which we're finding these planets, we, we, we may run out. So some are proposing that we only name planets out to 100 light years away from the Earth. And the piece kind of notes that, you know, like it or not, if a name sticks, it's going to get stuck to a certain world. In fact, there's one that uh, may already have done so. There is a planet named Kepler-16b, which some mathematicians argued might not possibly exist. The planet orbits a twin star system. So you got your two stars in the middle and the planet orbiting them both, or at least it's orbiting the center of gravity between the two stars. Uh, people have already nicknamed it Tatooine, after the fictional desert world of Luke Skywalker in the original Star Wars. As you recall in that movie, when the sun set, there was a double sunset of the two stars. And speaking of what's below the surface, that Discover magazine has a rather lengthy article on the mystery at the Earth's core. Wondering how it is that we have such a profound magnetic field when our sister planet, Venus, lacks one. We find this to all be very cool stuff, and that's why we're such big fans of planetary exploration. And we hope to bring on some people from the Planetary Society in the weeks and months to come. And uh, one final item for the segment, which also comes from this uh, same issue of Discover Magazine, was um, a gallery of heroes. Apparently in the April issue, the editor-in-chief of the magazine asked... um, who people's science idols and heroes were. And we particularly liked five of the choices. A Michael Patterson wrote in to, to nominate the Hungarian physician Ignaz Semmelweis. Semmelweis earned passing mention in our discussion several weeks back with Thomas Goetz about his book, The Remedy, Robert Koch, Arthur Conan Doyle, and the Quest to Cure Tuberculosis. Semmelweis actually nailed down the fact that infections were causing death and disease in humans before the work of Louis Pasteur, Joseph Lister, and Robert Koch. Unfortunately for Semmelweis, he was unable to convince his fellow physicians, and he wound up committing suicide out of frustration. Still, we agree, he should be regarded as a hero. We also like the choice of Carl Sagan, nominated by a Jay Fancher. He said this might seem like an unusual hero for an anthropologist, which I guess Mr. Fancher is, but he said he was and is mine. His blend of skepticism and wonder was unparalleled and inspiring. Points to Carl Sagan. Two others we've mentioned favorably on this program in the past also made the list. Edward Bauer nominated Eugene Shoemaker. He said that he convinced us that the Earth was occasionally struck by massive objects. We may need to invest many more resources to detect and prepare for deflecting incoming asteroids and comets. Following Shoemaker's lead could save the lives of all future humans. And of course, Gene Shoemaker and his wife Carolyn, along with David Levy, discovered the comet named after them, Shoemaker-Levy 9, which crashed into Jupiter back in 1994. Amazing story in science. man named Roger Dean nominated, someone he described as my favorite scientist, my science hero, Richard Feynman. Brilliant, funny, irreverent, articulate, intellectual, pragmatic. What else do you need? Deeply regret that Richard Feynman passed away before we could uh, have a chance at interviewing him for this program, but we did interview his daughter about the book Perfectly Reasonable Deviations from the Beaten Track, The Letters of Richard P. Feynman, who, of course, was her dad. 
We also spoke a few years later with author Jim Ottaviani about the graphic novel based on Richard Feynman, who was really our favorite Nobel Prize winning physicist. Final choice I want to mention, nominated by Mike Shaughnessy, was um, Herbert S. Zim. Some folks will remember that name as the originator of the Golden Guides. These are still found in gift shops and museums and in national parks. He'd previously been a private school teacher in New York City and apparently was Mike Shaughnessy's science teacher in the sixth grade. Those Golden Guides are sometimes just unparalleled in their ability to convey complex data in a very simple fashion. I have quite a collection in my house, and I and I use them frequently in years past. All right, we're running along. We've got to take a break. Let's do so. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Let's talk with our old friend Sean Minton when we come back. Tyler! 